Welcome to Marginal Way with Natalie Gray, a podcast born with the intention to highlight the perspectives of those that make Seattle tick. Our conversations feature the good news that exists in our corner of the world and ultimately gets us inspired for what we can build together next. I select guests with hearts, heads, and actions all in the right place. A unique and much needed combination nowadays, as ever. They are inspirational and dear to me, as I hope they will become inspirational and dear to you. I encountered today's guest for the first time a couple of years ago in the relatively remote town of Bo Edison, Washington. Now, outside of Seattle, Edison has to be one of my most favorite nearby places. It's a beautiful, stark, and simple town near Skagit Valley, Washington, an area famous for its farms and flowers. In Edison specifically, the entire two-block main street is all locally owned food, studios, and galleries, so you could just about say is all artisan-run, which is really cool. In fact, I've heard it's where a number of Seattle artists have moved over time due to the increasing costs of the city. It feels tight-knit and self-sufficient and makes for a fun day trip. A couple of years ago, friends and I were on said day trip, brunching at Tweets Farm to Table Diner, picking up some scrap wood from the cabinet makers across the street, and we happened into the Smith and Valley Gallery. Manning the show, which also happened to be her own work, was today's guest, Trisha Stackle. Trisha is an artist and designer living and working in Skagit Valley in Bow, Washington. She is inspired by simple geometric shapes, color, tactile materials, and how the human body interacts with them. She is committed to rethinking the way people live with and relate to art and design. Whether making furniture, soft sculpture, home textiles, or fine art, quality craftswomanship is at the forefront of her ethos of making. Welcome, Trisha. Thank you. That was a great introduction. Part of your bio reads that you are committed to rethinking the way people live with and relate to art and design. So let's talk about it as it relates to your two current projects, Chromatic Gestures and the Creations of Hillstaff. What are the stories behind those bodies of work? I'm very interested in living with art in the sense of aesthetically pleasing or beautiful objects that enhance your quality of life. But I'm also very much a minimalist in a lot of ways. And so for me, this body of work becomes kind of functional sculpture. I make these arcs and S-forms that function both as furniture in the sense that you can sit on them, you can lay on them, you can play with them, and they'll support your body. But they're also very much simplified sculptural building blocks that you can reconfigure in your own space. So the artwork changes with you now as the curator. And I just get really excited about that concept of things that don't just have one function or one role or even one place or one form, but involve the audience, you know, if it's in a public space, in a way that they become part of the work and kind of complete the work, really. We live in kind of a very consumerist society, which is, I wouldn't say necessarily all bad, but it does create different, creates a overconsumption quality, I think, that happens in, in our culture. You can go to Costco and buy yourself a couch, and it may last five years, it may last 10 years, but you might even get rid of it before it's worn out. And so I'm really, not that 
not that the way I'm trying to change the way people think about art and design is uniquely my idea, not at all. It's actually just one of the conversations that I would like to be part of as an artisan designer with the idea of buying less, buying better, buying objects that will keep you young and keep you creative and change as you grow. Like one of the great things mm-hmm. I love about chromatic gestures is it really just depends who's looking at it or using it. It helps define what it is. You know, some people when I've done shows like an art fair, if there happens to be a family with a lot of little kids who are now like playing just the most excited <laughs> they can be on these pieces, other people that walk by are like, oh, that woman makes kids furniture. And then when that family leaves and another family comes by, they start arching their back over the large arcs, stretching out in this really relaxing way. Then other people walk by and they're like, oh my gosh, this person makes therapeutic furniture, these objects for stretching. But it's the same work. It's just who's coming by and what they make sense of it and you know, what they see other people doing with it. I like that because you could have a piece of furniture in your house and kids come over and they come up with a whole different way of using it. I mean, I've learned the most about even what this work is from kids. Like I just made the pieces, <laughs> tried to figure out all of that. I didn't necessarily know <laughs> how they would fully work. I just knew that the system that I created around it had a lot of potential. On your site, you have a short artist statement that describes the aspects about your work you like and why. It says, I like systems. They calm me. I like minimalism. It delights me. I like color. It energizes me. I like stitching. It grounds me. I like wool. It comforts me. I like quality. It reassures me. I like making things. It makes me feel useful. One line caught my eye in particular. It says, I like systems, they calm me, because I too like systems. For me, as a systems specialist in solar, systems can often mean how we organize people, information, and software to protect and accelerate the adoption of solar. So I'd love to hear more about what your systems are. Yes, it's interesting. I'm actually a fairly anxious person having hard times making decisions about things. And so becoming an artist was an interesting choice. <laughs> and so the whole creative process of art, it's just unlimited decisions to be made. You can make all the shots. <laughs> That's both really exciting and also really paralyzing at times. For me, when I get to the point in my creative process where I can build a bit of a logic into it, and I do very much think of it as a system, like what materials are going to be used? How will those materials function? How will those materials relate with the other materials? How will these forms build together? How are they connected? How can they function together? Also very much in my drawings, I think of this a lot. I do kind of mixed media drawings with cut painted paper and hand dyed silk thread. And it's very much like me creating this language of materials, shapes, and forms, and then how they both physically connect and integrate. But then also just like, what does that language mean? What happens when the paper connects with the thread? What is that relationship? When I get to the point in my creative process where I have kind of established a system, 
for these selected objects or these selected materials. That's where it really frees me up and I can relax a little bit, but at the same time, it increases my ability to be creative because now I, in some ways, have like boundaries to work within. Mm -hmm. And so I love that because then you're like, okay, well then I can come up with anything as long as it fits into the system that I built. And even within my system, I love to upset the logic at times. But if there's no logic to be upset or there's no expectation that then there's this kind of surprise element, it wouldn't be as meaningful if it didn't already have an established systematic logic to it. So much of art is the human mind loving to see patterns and learn them and break them. So much of that symbolizes what we do in life and society. And I, I find that really inspirational. With that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Trisha, you graduated with your MFA in 2010 and are now commissioning work for the Bellevue Art Museum. What does it take to get from here to there? And what tips do you have for up-and-coming artists? I guess some of the tips I would give is try to be as clear about what you want from your art career with yourself as you can. And then you have to create a sense of discipline around that then. If you want this goal to be achieved, what's going to be your plan in getting there? I had been a high school teacher for five years, and I knew that I really wanted to be a practicing artist. So I kind of had to get from A to B and what that was going to look like. And for me, it ended up being an MFA program. I don't think everybody needs an MFA. I think an MFA can be really helpful for you if you are interested in pursuing teaching. It's a credential that you'll need. If you want to teach at the college level, you can you know, teach in many, many other ways than just at a college without an MFA. But I think education-wise, it was really, really helpful for me. I didn't have a BFA. So undergrad, I studied nursing and theology. I did take some art classes, but, you know, I didn't have the same rigorous background that you would get with a BFA. So for me, it was really looking for an opportunity to really learn how to talk about work and how to be critical about work in a way to kind of help you develop really strong work. At the same time, it was also very much a couple of years to really try on the discipline of being an artist, you know, where your job is to go to your studio every day, come up with what you're going to make, how you're going to make it, how you're going to talk about it, you know, and be open to, to how you can change that work. And then afterward was kind of the real test then, right? Like, can you do it without this wonderfully supportive community that you get with an MFA? You have to learn to enjoy to sell your work. It might not come naturally, but you have to figure that out because the only way you can support yourself is if you sell your work. That's going to be your primary income. For pricing, there's a kind of formula that I work from. You have to definitely look at what do your materials cost? What is your overhead? You know, what does it actually cost so that you can be in a space making that work. So that's rent, that's utilities, and kind of like all of that goes into pricing. But then 
a lot of artists will stop there and then that's the price they come up with and they're going to be out of business really quick because as an artist you have to pay yourself not volunteer work <laughs> exposure doesn't pay your bills it's important to come up with a price that you think is fair. What is your time worth? How long have you been in this business? What are the skills that you have? Are they very, very common and many people have them or are they pretty unique and they're valued at a higher rate? You have got to be profitable if you want to stay in business. So it's taken me a long time to figure that out. I've definitely taken a number of business classes, mostly online. Creative Live is a great resource. People interested in taking business classes, especially for artists or other creative types trying to make a living. I'm kind of newly, I would say in the past five or six years, I knew that I really wanted to pursue showing my work in a gallery and also with some of my design objects, I'm interested in selling them at wholesale. That's a scary step to take because you have to be profitable at half the cost in order to play in that game. And you have to do that across the board then. So anybody, because otherwise you're going to second guess the galleries or the stores that you're working with. If people can just come buy it cheaper from you, then why would they buy it at the store? So you have to kind of have the same price, buy it from you or buy it from the gallery. That was really scary step to take because already like making kind of high end <laughs> furniture sized pieces with very expensive materials. Already it has to be a high price just to pay those kind of basic things I was talking about, materials and space. But now I have to double that. I was terrified. You just, <laughs> you find your audience, you know, like there's, you can't just rely on your prices to sell your work. You know, you have to do branding, you have to do marketing. Mm -hmm. And if those things kind of match the price point, which is a process, you know, it's not going to be an immediate match, though you can't have really bad photography and no branding and <laughs> um, sell super high end things. It just, it's hard then, you know, you have to have already established a big name for yourself, I think, to be able to get away with that. So I'm constantly trying to work on all of that at the same time as just making the work. Sometimes I do great and other times I don't and that's okay. It's a work in progress. <laughs> what energizes you about your work? Oh, man. Well, this year is a pretty exciting year for me. Since the beginning of Chromatic Gestures, the first iteration was actually my thesis project in graduate school. And that I did have an opportunity to have that work in a, in a public museum. People did get to kind of interact with a handful of pieces at one time. But this year, I actually am doing a commission for the Bellevue Art Museum, and I'm making the largest collection I have made of chromatic gestures for the first floor forum gallery space at the museum. So that is like really exciting. I think the most exciting part will, of course, be once it's finished and in the space, the work will be so much more accessible to so many more people. And I'm excited for that. I'm excited that the museum is going to have that and that that's something that they want to have. That's really motivating me right now, even though the actual production of it is hard. <laughs> the first steps are getting my plans sent to a fabricator and they will 
roll thin sheets of aluminum into all the forms that I need. Some small arcs, medium arcs, large arcs, some S forms, some Y forms. Then it comes back to me. I get all the pieces sandblasted so then there's gritty tooth on the outside of the forms that then makes it much easier to then glue foam to it. So then I glue this foam rubber around the whole piece so that you don't ever feel the hardness of the, the metal, but you get the structure and the flexibility of aluminum in the piece. At this point, I'm finishing up forming the foam. It's been attached to the metal, but now I'm having to kind of trim everything and square everything up to get all the pieces equal widths so that the whole system can function with these pieces kind of being stacked together. And then next is mm -hmm. measuring and cutting out a whole lot of fabric. There's two layers of fabric on each piece on each side. Some of that will get glued on and then the last layer of fabric will then get stretched and formed over the piece and then trimmed and then everything's hand sewn. <laughs> it's great, but it's hard working on 15 pieces at once, trying to wow. move it along from step to step. The unfortunate part though with this commission is I'm actually having some of the worst health problems I've ever had. Yeah, so it's this process of accepting that my process is going to be a lot slower. And so kind of just regularly grappling with that. <laughs> Fortunately, the museum, we've been in great communication from the beginning, and they are being really flexible with me in terms of when exactly it's going to be finished. Uh, so that's taken a lot of the stress off of it. But um, it's very exciting because I know it will be something that I think a lot of people will really enjoy. And it's nice to know that something I can do will hopefully inspire other people to interact with the work. A lot of the time in my field of environmental sustainability work, there's an emphasis on keeping systems running to sustain life on Earth. But we don't often step back and answer, <laughs> what are you sustaining it for? Granted, that's a big philosophical question and answered differently depending on who you ask. But one of the reasons why I sustain life on Earth is that study of life shows that life is still a very unique, mysterious, and precious thing. And as social beings, there are so many ways to perceive life and enjoy it. So I believe the more familiar we are with the many ways there are to live, the better we'll be able to respect each other and to make meaning of our own lives. So thank you for sharing your niche with us thank today, you. Trisha. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. that a chance one-off meeting a few years ago would turn totally. into a good conversation. No, it's it's right? great. I actually, yeah. The end of the work I make, and I think a lot of artists make, is created in a vacuum. You know, it's kind of what you're around, what you're interested right. in. And then oftentimes, I think the best work comes from people who look at other art a lot just to get a sophisticated aesthetic. For me, some of the people that I've been very interested in and kind of influenced by their work are a contemporary person. Her name is Stephanie Marin. She does some just phenomenal art slash design object, art object, design object, functional pieces um, and collections that kind of similarly, I think she's on the same train of like trying to invite play and creativity in people's lives. She has a company called Smarin. So S. Marin, and she works with a team of other artist designers. 
I'm also very much influenced by designers from back in like mid-century modern times. One of my huge art stars, Werner Panton, he's an artist and designer who worked all the way back in like the 50s. He started, I think he had about 45 year career and he designed some really great bases and furniture and textiles and architecture with bright colors and really beautiful forms that just transformed people's spaces and the way they thought about furniture. And he had these big kind of like installations of these forms that you could climb into and lounge in in all sorts of different ways. And I just really admire his work, the longevity of it all all the different things he's been able to come up with and contribute to the creative world. Marginal Way with Natalie Gray is brought to you by the Anchor app and listeners like you. Thank you. If the work we do resonates with you, there are many ways to give back. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share our work, make a contribution via Anchor, send us a voice message, and of course, listen to every episode. You can find all things Marginal Way podcast at our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash Marginal Way podcast. See you next time.